This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. This fall, violence broke out again between Armenia and Azerbaijan over a contestant region in Azerbaijan known as the Nagorno-Karabakh. Home of 170,000 people, the majority of its inhabitants are ethnic Armenian, and the area itself has been governed by ethnic Armenians since 1994. The country's close allegiances with other countries had many worried that the fighting and civilian deaths might spiral into global war. Armenia, for instance, has close ties to Russia and to a lesser extent, Iran. Azerbaijan has the strong support of Turkey, and some have alleged that Syrian militants are also fighting alongside the Azeri. Another complicating factor is religion. More than 95% of Azerbaijan's 10 million people identify as Muslim, mostly Shia. More than 90% of Armenia's 3 million people identify as Christian, specifically Armenian Apostolic. Armenia also boasts the oldest state church that goes all the way back to the beginning of the 4th century AD. We wanted to talk about the country's Christian heritage and the extent to which it is playing a role in the current conflict. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson. I'm Editorial Director at Christianity Today. All right, Ted, there is a lot to unpack here, but let's start with your initial thoughts. Yeah, my initial thoughts were needing help (laughs) understanding some of this, following it in The Economist and BBC and a few other places that I keep an eye on and saying this looks important and it looks like it is affecting Christians, but I don't know much about it. So I wanted to learn more. Also, you know, my wife works for World Vision, which is active in that area, in Armenia in particular. We're now due to COVID, working side by side and in rooms next door and hearing some ways in which had to pivot because of the conflict. And yeah, this is, is it clearly affecting our world and, and wanting CT to cover it and talking to our, our news team and our CT global team saying, hey, can you help our readers understand this a little bit better? We've covered it. We did some news articles and it's clear from the emails and other social media responses that we got back that the emotions are extremely high, as one would imagine with a, with a conflict like this. But again, it was like, okay, I need to, I, <laughs> you're going to do a quick to listen to, to know a little bit more and to get, to get an explainer. This will be definitely more of a leaner episode than some we've done recently. I am really looking forward to just learning more about Armenian Christianity on this episode in particular. I think I mentioned a couple minutes ago that this is the oldest state church. And when I first heard that, I was very intrigued by that because I think I had previously assumed that had been the Roman Empire. The other thing that I (laughs) know about Armenian Christianity, and I'm sure some people will appreciate this more than others, is last year, Kim Kardashian took her kids there to get baptized. And she also got baptized there. The pictures that were from the baptism ceremony were extremely beautiful. And I also kind of put this 
a little bit more on my radar, not to mention the anniversary, the 100th anniversary of the Armenian genocide was also pretty recently. So I feel like up to this point, my knowledge of the church has been pretty fragmented. And I'm really looking forward to having a much deeper and broader sense of the church, what it is, kind of what it's endured over the years. And hopefully that will give me some insight as I try to understand this conflict a little bit more. Ted, who is our guest to talk about this? Our guest today is Felix Corley, who I've been reading for years and years and have appreciated his work. He's editor of Forum 18 News Service, which covers religious freedom issues in the former Soviet Union. And he's written extensively on the Armenian Apostolic Church in the Soviet period. There's someone to explain something in that region. I usually... uh, head over to Forum 18 and back read a ton of the articles that Forum 18 has done. So thrilled that Felix is here. Thank you for welcoming me on to the program today. Thanks. Thanks for coming on and for helping us through this. I did want to start with something that I read as I was doing some, you know, as I said, I, I tend to read your work as, as we try to cover some of these issues. I read a, a book review that you'd published in a, a peer-reviewed journal a, a bit ago when it was talking about Ar- Armenia. You had mentioned something about appreciating that the writer of that particular book, you know, I think they, they had mentioned that kind of, uh, you know, oldest state church or oldest officially Christian nation got into the, the nuances quicker. There's something underneath the kind of uh, Armenia's designation, which they're very proud of, this kind of first official Christian nation. What are some of the edges of that statement that we should be aware of? Well, I think it's true. They were the first nation that officially adopted Christianity in 301 AD. You know, this was before Christianity became the official religion in other countries. They are, as you say, extraordinarily proud of it. Everyone will tell you this. But even more important is that they date the founding of their church back to a tradition that two of Christ's apostles, St. Thaddeus and St. Bartholomew, came to Armenia in the second half of the first century to preach the gospel. This is why they call it the apostolic church. They didn't derive their Christianity from Greek church or the Russian church or the Georgians or whoever. This gives them some kind of precedence in the Christian world in their sort of self-understanding. You know, it's an important part of their cultural identity. Whether or not people ever go near a church and darken its doors or ever light a candle, this is something everyone will know. Is it something where, you know, by by nature of your birth, you're automatically counted as a, a member of, of the church? Do you have to unregister or or what's the what is the nature of kind of the state church aspect? Well, you don't unregister. I mean, the, at the moment in Armenia, there is no sort of official register of who is a member of the church and who isn't. Even during the Soviet period, when officially the Soviet Union was atheist and anti-religious, the head of the church, the Catholicos, he kept repeating that, you know, everyone in Armenia was a member of the church because they are ethnic Armenians, almost going against the official ideology that everyone then had to be atheists. And well, there were a few backward people who still clung to these outdated traditions. But so, you know, even then, even now, unless you're specifically a member of another community, uh, there's an old, fairly long-standing Catholic community, Armenian Catholic community. There are a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses, a lot of members of Protestant churches. There's even a few Muslims in in Armenia today. You know, unless you're specifically of another faith, you are going to be deemed to be a member of the church. And if you're Armenian, you roll up, you want baptism, the priest will baptize you. 
when the conflict started in the late 1980s between the Armenians and the Azeris, and many of the Armenians fled from Baku in, in the Azerbaijani capital and other cities of Azerbaijan, the priests would baptize them even though they knew that these people knew nothing about or almost nothing about Christianity. It was almost like these people became true Armenians because through their baptism. It was more you know, becoming Armenian than becoming a Christian. The Armenians of Soviet Armenia were pretty secular. Church attendance was very low. And there are many of them who were baptized, you know, when they fled Azerbaijan in the late 80s, you know, they were teenagers, they were adults, you know, they probably never darkened the doors of a church in their life. You know, baptism is a crucial sort of entry point, you know, makes you a real Armenian is what people will tell you. Can you tell us a little bit about Armenian history? This is a part of the world that I really don't know that much about. And I'm wondering if maybe you can start with when Christianity arrives there and give us a sense of what happened over the centuries. The story that the apostles St. Thaddeus and St. Bartholomew preached in Armenia, this is the sort of thing that is probably very difficult to prove either way. But when King Tiridates was baptized in 301 AD and Christianity became the state religion, that is fairly well attested. Interestingly, one of the commemorations the church has every year is in 8451, when they were fighting against the Persians, who were Zoroastrians. They were fighting to defend their faith. The, the Persians had banned Christian practice in Armenia. The Armenians actually lost that battle. Several decades later, they were again allowed to practice their faith under the Persians. But I mean, like many nations in that part of the world, or in many parts of the world, the Armenians, like others, they've been sort of buffeted about by history. You know, they've been spread across quite a wide geographic territory. It's very difficult to actually say. Well, it's impossible to say who each territory should belong to. Should this be Turkey? Should this be Armenia? Should this be Azerbaijan? Should this be Georgia? These are mixed areas of mixed population, always have been. In fact, now it's probably more ethnically concentrated than it's ever been in in history. But the main part of the Armenian population were really in the Ottoman Empire by the the later 17th, 18th, 19th centuries under Turkish control, under the sultans. The Armenians were recognized like other minorities as a separate millet, which was a political, ethnic, and religious community all rolled into one. So while Muslims, Muslim Turks, were the majority and they had, well, they didn't have rights because the Sultan had all the rights, but, you know, they were recognized as, you know, the top level people. They recognized other communities, the various Christian groups, the Syrians, uh, you know, the Roman Catholics and others, almost the second-class citizens, the Jews the, and other communities like that. They were really second-class citizens, but they, within their own community, they were allowed to have places of worship. They controlled things like, you know, family law within their community. In the Russian Empire, Again, they were treated as one of the so-called foreign faiths, even though they were in fact native to, you know, especially in the Caucasus. They were foreign faiths included Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Muslims, Jews, other groups like that. So, you know, they were treated as foreign by the Tsarist regime. Uh, but the great tragedy for the Armenian people came in the late 19th century, in the early 20th century, in Ottoman Turkey. The 
Ottomans decided they were going to drive out or kill the entire Armenian population. People, scholars reckon that one and a half million were massacred or died in forced marches as they were driven out of Anatolia towards the Syrian desert. Many of them died of starvation or typhus or various other diseases, the ones who weren't killed pretty brutally. The the date that the Armenians commemorate now, in April 1915, was when the Ottomans rounded up quite a large number of prominent Constantinople Armenians, including the monk Komitas, who was a well-known musicologist, musician, composer, and he was driven mad by his his detention. He was actually allowed out, and he ended his days in a psychiatric hospital in France. You know, the sort of cream of the Armenian intelligentsia of Constantinople were all grabbed up, and that is the date that the Armenians now commemorate as the start of the genocide in 1915, which is why, as you mentioned, you know, we had the 100th anniversary in, in 2015 of that. But even to this day, the Turkish government is spending a lot of money lobbying around the world to deny this genocide. They claim, oh, well, it was a civil war and the Armenians killed Turks and it wasn't a million and a half, it was maybe 10,000 or 20,000 or whatever. So, it, you know, it's still a very live issue which makes Armenians angry. They're very angry about this denial. It was bad enough what happened to them. You know, it's the continuing denial. And that's why the Armenians today are spread out through the ones that survived. They moved to Syria, they moved to Lebanon, to Cyprus, to Greece, into the Russian Empire. So many Armenians today are descendants of survivors of the genocide. So it is a very live issue even now. And you know, yeah. emotions still run high. <laughs> well, that is a lot of history. Thank you for <laughs> that overview. It was really interesting to kind of hear about the different ways that the church has looked during this time, or this community in particular has looked during this time. I specifically want to go back to talking about the Ottoman Empire. What type of relationship did they have with this Muslim government leading up to the genocide? They were sort of respectful in any empire. The religious communities, they have to show loyalty, they have to show respect. It was really a kind of ethnic kind of group. They controlled their own schools, they controlled their own place of worship. Almost the whole community was self-contained. And Armenians could get on. You know, a lot of the businesses were owned by Armenians, just as there were businesses owned by Greeks. You know, a lot of the, for example, you know, the Armenians were pioneers in photography in the Ottoman Empire. A lot of the photographers, you know, you, you look at the old photos of even of the sultans and the Muslim leaders, you look at the bottom and the names of photographers' studios are Armenian. And many Armenians in the Ottoman Empire actually spoke Turkish. They Many of them didn't even know Armenian. And for example, some of the prayer books and Bibles and so on were in Turkish, but written in Armenian script. Like all these empires, there was a sort of strange separateness, but mixing at the same time. You know, really, the genocide just destroyed completely the communities. So the only place where the Armenians really survived were it was in Istanbul, the very small bit of Turkey, which is in Europe, Rodosto and some of the other places up there towards the Bulgarian border. But in the rest of Turkey, the whole community was decimated. There are one or two churches which have survived, but with almost no communities. Although 
in recent years, there have been many Turks who've been discovering that they they actually have Armenian roots themselves, and particularly the women were often taken as sex slaves or you know forcibly married to people and had to hide the fact they were Armenian. And people are looking back over their own ancestry and, and discovering it. Just like, say, for example, in Poland or Czech Republic or whatever, a lot of people are discovering they were actually of Jewish origin. You know, it was this sort of buried, hidden ethnic history that people perhaps even generations later, people are, are discovering and looking back on, and some people are taking some pride in it. Others would rather just forget it and back on it and think, you know, this era has gone. I think I'm still missing the part about what exactly caused the Ottomans to turn on the Armenians in this way. Armenians were divided. There was larger community in the Ottoman Empire, but across the border in the Russian Empire, there was also a lot of Armenians in Georgia, in what is now Armenia, Azerbaijan, and also in southern Russia. The Ottomans and the Russians had long been competing for territory and clashing, and they were sort of mutual enemies. Therefore, the Ottomans believed that the local Armenians were ganging up with the Russians, almost they were fifth column, they were traitors who were ready to betray them and really wanted the Russians to come in and take over the country. So it was partly that, partly general dislike of ethnic minorities, partly a religious dislike of people who are not Muslims, partly it was they were maybe jealous of the wealth that some of the Armenians had, some of the you know, business people had amassed. It was a sort of combination of factors. Continuing through the history, and perhaps we can talk about you know, what happened with when the Soviet Union came in and, and what that also did with just the cost of life, but also you know, the religious, uh, religious freedom aspects in, in that period. Just like other, all other religious communities, the, the Soviet Union really crushed the Armenian church. It was a very difficult time. And this is a church which was just trying to recover from the genocide from 1915. The short-lived Armenian Independent Republic, which lasted from 1918 to 1920, was very feeble. It was overrun with refugees. The church was doing what it could to house refugees to support them. There were Americans from the, the Near, East, Near East Relief who were doing a lot to support the Armenian population. There was a sort of groundswell of sympathy for the Armenians in various European and, and North American countries. But the independent Armenian Republic more or less collapsed and had to hand over to the Soviets in 1920. So three years after the Bolsheviks seized power in, in Petrograd, they imposed all the anti-religious elements that they had done in Russia. They confiscated religious property. They put a whole load of restrictions on the clergy. They closed down the seminary. They banned the church from having any almost any publications. You know, all the measures, they started arresting priests. They started imposing very high taxes. And in 1938, they murdered the head of the church, the Catholicos, Catholicos Koren. He was in Echmiadz, in the church headquarters, which is just outside the capital, Yerevan. They came along one night Many of the priests had already been arrested by then, accused of being spies or, you know, whatever the, you know, under Stalin, anything was was a reason to arrest people and to shoot them. So, you know, so the, the Catholicos was very, very isolated there in the monastery. They came along one night and strangled him. You know, the church was pretty much dead in the Soviet Union. So while they had maybe a thousand churches, 
before the Soviet period. Even the official publication of the Soviet Embassy in London in 1941 said that they only had nine open churches, functioning churches in the Soviet Union in at the beginning of the Second World War. So that's a huge drop. But I mean, it wasn't unique. I mean, this was very common for all communities, the Russian Orthodox, the Muslims, the Jews, the Protestant communities as well. What probably saved them was the Second World War. I mean, Stalin received through the three main surviving Russian Orthodox bishops in the Kremlin one night in after midnight, one night in September in 1943. In 1945, he received the Orthodox bishops again. He, he also received Kevork, the successor to Choren, as the acting Catholicos. He came to Moscow, he met Stalin, and he came on his own. So the Russian Orthodox bishops in 1943, for their meeting with Stalin, there were three of them. Kevork had to go on his own because there was almost no one left by then apart from him. He met Stalin. Stalin agreed that he could reopen the seminary, that they could have a monthly journal, that priests would be freed from imprisonment, the church would be able to function to a certain extent once again. But it was really a, a church which was revived by the Soviet authorities. The Soviet authorities had to pump money in. They approved the holding of an election for a new Catholicos. And of course, Kevork is the one that they Stalin had already met. Kevork was the candidate. Kevork was the one everyone voted for. Now, what is unique about the Armenian church, or perhaps unique, is that it is a national church that represents or supposedly represents not only the clergy, but the people. Every time they elect a new Catholicos, you have representatives, delegates from all the dioceses around the world. So there'd be people from, I mean, the Armenians are very widely spread and they had dioceses not only in, in the Soviet Union, in Russia and in Azerbaijan and in Georgia, although these were barely functioning by the 1940s. They also had dioceses which were functioning. In, they had a patriarch in Jerusalem. They had the patriarchate in Constantinople in Istanbul. They got communities in Lebanon, in Cyprus, in Iran, in the United States, in France, in Britain, you know, you name it, in even Latin America. So to hold a church assembly, to elect Kevorg as Catholicos, the Soviets really had to put on a show. They had to get people in from all around the world. They had to, the, the state provided them with food. And, you know, this was a country in 1945, at the end of the Second World War, which was really on its knees in terms of supplies of food and everything. But yet the state was ready to supply them with everything. And the guy that was elected was, of course, the one that the state had approved. In the post-war era, they did manage to rebuild a lot of the infrastructure. But because the church had probably more people outside the Soviet Union than they had in the Soviet Union. The government, the Soviets were desperate not to allow the church headquarters to be transferred abroad. They were scared stiff of this. So they had to do everything to impress Armenians around the world. Look, we're looking after the church, we're caring for it, we're supporting it, and so on. It was a pretty ironic situation that uh, they produced. And in 1955, after Kevok had died, they had another church assembly and Vazgen was elected Catholicos. He died in, only in 1994, so he was the longest serving religious leader of any community in the Soviet Union. He, he was there for from 1955 to 1994, so you know it's a pretty hefty time in office, and he was very widely respected among Armenians, even though on his own admission he wasn't particularly religious, but he regarded becoming a clergyman as 
a duty to the people, to the nation. He regarded the church as the custodian of the identity and heritage of the people of the nation, and that's how he viewed the church. And he did have quite wide respect until the conflict started with Azerbaijan in the late 1980s. I've, I've been corrected, I guess, in the past of maybe not referring to the Armenian Apostolic Church as the Armenian uh, Orthodox Church. And there seems to be some sensitivity on, you know, I guess, using the word Eastern Orthodox or something like that. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I didn't explore it much. I just kind of apologize. But what's the... Yes, if you look at the sort of families of churches, as some people like to describe, and you've got the Western churches, the Catholic, the Protestants and others, you have the Orthodox churches, the Russians, the Greeks, Bulgarians, Romanians, and so on. And then you have the Oriental Orthodox, which is a group of churches which includes the Armenians, the Copts, the Ethiopians, and a few others. And these are ones that did not take part in the Council of Chalcedon, non-Chalcedonian churches are sometimes called. So they're in their own category. And Vazgen was always very clear, as Catholicos, he was very clear to show their difference from the Orthodox, because the Russian Orthodox was like the older brother for all the Christian churches in the Soviet Union. The Soviets gave them, a, you know, when they had to respect religious communities, like with, when meeting foreigners, the Russians were always given the place of honor and so on. But Vazgen every time would make a point about how their church, the Armenian church, predated the Russian church and how it was a separate one. It had its own legitimacy as an apostolic church. There was some dispute in North America in the 40s, 50s, 60s, where one of the bishops described the church as the Armenian Apostolic Orthodox Church, and a lot of Armenians didn't like that. It made it look like they were trying to cozy up to the Russians or to the Orthodox world and saying, well, we're, you know, people said, well, we're not Orthodox, <laughs> we're on our own. But there were, it's possible the Soviets actually had the idea of trying to bulldoze them into the Orthodox Church to make them, like the Georgian Orthodox Church, make them another Orthodox Church, but that didn't seem to come to anything, but they were invited to various pan-Orthodox meetings which the Soviets organized, but every time the Armenian representatives did everything they could to show that they were different. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't 
I, I didn't come home. But there all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. I want to talk about a little bit the issue at hand, which is this region, Nagorno-Karabakh. What can you tell us about this region? And at the top of the show, we mentioned that this is not the first time that violence has broken out there. Maybe you can share a little bit about the history of the conflict overall. These territorial conflicts are always very complicated. And as I say, the areas always traditionally had a very mixed population. I mean, the biggest Armenian city in the early 20th century was in fact Tiflis, Tbilisi, which is now the capital of Georgia. There was a huge Armenian population. They were the intellectual class of the city. And you talk to Armenians now, and they, you know, lament the fact that, you know, the city was built by Armenians and they were all, anyway, that's, you know, all gone now. You know, there are some Armeni- Armenians still there, but uh, not so many. Armenians were in Baku, the Azerbaijani capital. A lot of the oil industry was Armenian controlled. Again, the you know merchants and the many of the sort of lawyers and people like that were Armenians. And one of the tragedies of what happened in the late 1980s when conflict started over Karabakh was that all the Azerbaijanis and all the Muslim Kurds were kicked out of Armenia, and they were a sizable part of the population. And all the Armenians were kicked out of Azerbaijan, except for the ones who fought back in the area of Nagorno-Karabakh. It's a mountainous area. It's close to Armenia, but not quite you know, next to the between the two, there was an area which used to be populated by Kurds, although they've been sort of Azerbaijanized over the years. They've been more assimilated to the Azeris. The Armenians throughout the Soviet period were the majority in Nagorno-Karabakh. One of the cities there, Shusha, has really been, it's a mountaintop city, which is where the cathedral that was recently attacked by explosives and drones and so on, where part of the, the roof was destroyed very recently in the last weeks. This was a city which is important in both Armenian history and culture and Azeri history and culture. Some of the poets came from Azeri poets came from the city and so on. So both sides really are lamenting the state of that city. The, uh, the Azerbaijanis are lamenting the loss of the city and they're desperate to get it back. The Armenians are lamenting, first of all, the massacres against them in the 1920s and also you know, the, the state of the city is in pretty bad repair nowadays with the, the recent fighting. You know, there's a lot of raw emotions. In at the end of 1990, well, by the end of 1994, the Armenians had not only retained control, the local Armenians not only retained control of the enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, they'd also seized some areas around it, which not only linked that enclave to Armenia itself, creating a sort of direct corridor, land corridor to Armenia. They'd also kicked out people from the surrounding villages. You know, I know people who come from the Azeri villages around there, and they're desperate for the the villages to be regained. And that was part of the impetus for Azerbaijan to try to recapture even some of the territory. The local Armenians say, we need this territory as a buffer zone to stop us being attacked. You know, in the last few years, the style of war has changed from trenches and, you know, like First World War gaining, you know, a few meters and back and forth from one trench to the other side. Now there's a lot of war with drones and heavy explosive, you know, grad rocket launches and things like that. And it's a very different type of war. But 
during the Soviet period, the Azerbaijanis did as much as they could to separate off the population of Nagorno-Karabakh from Armenia itself. Many of the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh, they didn't actually speak Armenian. They spoke Russian. Many of them went to work in Russia because it was, you know, it's an agricultural area, but there wasn't much to do there apart from that. And so it's a country of emigration like Ireland or other countries like that. People went away to work and many of them either went to Baku or to Yerevan in Armenia, or they went to Russia, to the Russian Far East. A lot of them would go as seasonal workers. And, you know, many of them, they just didn't speak Armenian. And it was really a revival of Armenian identity. There was only one church was briefly allowed to exist in Nagorno-Karabakh with an Armenian population of about 140,000 by the end of the Soviet period. There was only one church in the 50s, which didn't really survive very long. The Armenian Catholicos was only able to visit once in the 50s. It was really pretty isolated, but it, it became a kind of focal point for Armenian grievances and often write petitions to the Kremlin. Even the head of the church, although he was not supposed to get involved in politics or ethnic issues, he was the Vazgen who was elected in 1955. Very soon after his election, he was writing letters to the Kremlin demanding that Karabakh be given back, that areas of southern Georgia be given back, which were mainly Armenian populated, and Nakhichevan, an, an exclave of Azerbaijan, which is sort of sandwiched between Armenia and Turkey. He wanted that back as well. So he was there pushing for the, the Soviets to give these these lands back as he, as he regarded it, but he, he didn't get anywhere with that. I'm interested to hear about some of the effects of the identity, the national identity being wrapped up so closely with the religious identity. I mean, we see this, you know, globally in a lot of state churches and in a lot of places, but it sounds like it's very much more the case in Armenia than you would even find in other places where you might have some some state churches. I, I was looking at the World Values Survey data, you know, the numbers on things like, you know, percent I, I, you know, belonging to a re- religious organization or or denomination, of course, you know, off the charts, near near hundred percent. When you get to you know some behavior issues, does the you know, percent attending religious services about once a month? Uh, that's about a, a third of of Armenians praying to God more than once a week is is sixty one. So that's you know not not nothing. That's fairly high, I guess, in some ways. It was interesting to see percent believing in God was, you know, something like 97%, so basically everyone. But percent that think that religious faith is an important quality in children was, you know, down 38%. Some of these other numbers are fairly a percent considering religion important, 90%. But some of the actual um, kind of behavior and values below believing that religion is important and believing that membership is important, they tend to be a little bit on the low side for those very high membership numbers. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about, is it there's a high religion, religious aspect to understanding what it means to be Armenian? Or is it that, you know, the Soviet Union was fairly effective in wiping out the actual places to go to worship? And so it's just taken a very long time for some of the habits of of church attendance to come back up. What is Armenian religious life like on the ground? 
I don't think it's that high. It depends how you frame the question. And whenever people <laughs> interpret the question as being about, are they true Armenians? And do they support Armenia? They will respond to say, you know, of course they're Christians. Of course they support the church. Of course they do this, that, and the other. But I don't think church attendance is that high. And it was never high in the Soviet period. Even today, there are not that many churches around the place. I would say church attendance in Russia, for example, is far higher. You know, it's it's not that high. I mean, baptism is something that I think is a high percentage of children who are baptized. I mean, I was always a bit skeptical in the Soviet period when, you know, they say, oh, 60, 70% of babies were baptized. But having talked to a lot of people, I suspect that was actually true. People would go along on Sundays to the church headquarters at Echmiadzin from Yerevan. Yerevan was a big city and it only had three open churches during the later Soviet period, you know, which is not much for a you know, big city. And people go out to the monastery in Echmiadzin because that was the most sacred place and they'd baptize, have the kids baptized, they'll be queuing up for it. Whether people would actually attend a church and what people would do is the liturgy would be going on. They'd go in, they'd light a candle, stay for a bit and then go. Is that church attendance? You know, it depends how you measure these things. So, you know, the, uh, it's just the way you ask the questions. But I don't think that the people are particularly pious in the way that they might be in, in other countries. And if you compare the, even Russia, which has you know, a moderate church attendance, or Poland, which has far higher, I don't think it, it's particularly high in Armenia. So it just really depends on the way you interpret the questions and the answers. But in parallel to the official church, which is very sort of clerically dominated, even though the lay people have a decisive voice in election of the leader, there is a folk religion which is perhaps more deeply rooted and it's perhaps closer to Zoroastrianism or some of the sort of early faiths. And it sort of and it hinges a lot on sacred places, sacred groves, tying cloths onto branches of trees, sacrifices of animals. If you go to the, the monastery, I mean, even during the Soviet period, people would take, you know, if they were richer, they'd have a, you know, a sheep. If they were poorer, there might be a pigeon or something. They would sacrifice them at the monastery. The priest would bless the salt and put it over the on the animal. And then they cook the animals there and have a feast. I mean, eating together, Together, almost has a sacred element to it. And this sort of folk faith is very deeply rooted. And that is probably more what the faith of, you know, universal faith is. And the church is sort of in a kind of uneasy coexistence with it. It sort of has to accept part of it, like the priest blessing the salt that you put on the sacrificed animal without going the whole hog, really, because it's really, it's not in contradiction to the Christian faith, but it's sort of separate from it. You know, it's a difficult sort of thing to, this sort of split personality that the the nation has on, on in terms of religion. Looking at some of these stats, it does seem like there are, I mean, we're, you know, Christianity Today, obviously being an evangelical Protestant magazine, we're particularly interested in those folks. It looks like they are there, but they are maybe there in such small numbers that they may all know each other? Is that a fair thing to say? It's a very small community? 
Yes, it is small. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses outnumber Protestants by some way. They've gained maybe 170,000 people. I think there's a figure that I seem to recall that they have adherents they have in, in Armenia. Protestant churches are probably smaller, but they are long-standing. They're Baptists, there are various Pentecostal churches, Word of Life and, and other such churches. You know, you get Mormons, you get you know, all kinds of things. There was a very severe attack on them in 1995. Almost every non-Armenian apostolic religious community were brutally attacked. People were beaten and, you know, their place of worship were trashed. And, you know, it was a pretty nasty period. And that was just after the end of the first sort of war over Karabakh and national feelings were running high. And this was pretty much a state-sanctioned thing, nasty thuggish attacks on not only on other Christian communities, but uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, on Baha'is, there's a small Hare Krishna community, Transcendental Meditation and various other people, they were all physically attacked and, you know, it was very unpleasant. And the state never really apologized for it, never really investigated it. So that was a pretty unpleasant legacy. Yeah. Wow. What is the religious freedom situation for evangelicals and other and Protestants these days? I mean, is it is it hard to be non-Armenian apostolic in Armenia? No, I think the situation has eased a lot since that was 1995. That was probably the low point, but it has improved. They finally registered Jehovah's Witnesses, and they've also accepted alternative civilian service. So they, previously they were jailing dozens of Jehovah's Witness young men who refused to go in the army. That's a very sensitive issue for a country that's at war with its neighbor. But they finally accepted that and they're working now in hospitals and things like that in civilian roles. I mean, the Armenian Apostolic Church in law has various privileges. The other communities are not particularly harassed anymore. It's just probably the sheer weight of the Armenian church, which sort of rather cramps them a bit. But no, I wouldn't say that these days that they're restricted so much. I mean, the uh, Armenian Apostolic Church does have political clout with officials and with government people. But, you know, sometimes people will complain about what they're doing and what they're saying and the fact that in schools, for example, you know, some teachers will claim that anyone who's not a member of the Armenian Apostolic Church is a member of a sect or a cult, you know, this type of sort of unpleasantness. They are free to practice now. And there's even some Muslims, which despite the war with the Azeris, there are one or two of the Muslims are Armenians who've converted to Islam, and the rest of them are business people who come up from Iran. And ironically, many of them are ethnic Azeris, because there's a large Azeri minority in northern Iran. So they're Yerevan, the mosque, which has been reopened, and many of them ethnic Azeris from Iran. So, you know, it's a very complicated religious picture. Is there a kind of, I, I guess one, I may be putting the wrong categories on this, but is there a renewalist movement within the Armenian Apostolic Church that would be perhaps more friendly to evangelical issues? I mean, I, I just think of, of my history here at, at Christianity Today, knowing a number of kind of Armenian uh, Christians who you know have been in America, but you know some some of our listeners may know uh, Vigan Jorian, who wrote has written for CT a number of times, wrote kind of a 
big piece in 2005 called Dorm Brothel, but has been, you know, kind of talking with Christianity Today for years. Other folks who have kind of been part of ecumenical kind of conversations between uh, evangelicals and, and Catholics and Orthodox and, and, and folks in the Armenian church. If these tend to be one-off types or is there a bit of a, a group within the uh, Armenian Apostolic Church that's a bit of what you might in other contexts call a renewal movement? Yeah, there is. And the, it, it's been a quite a long-standing movement. I mean, basically in the Ottoman Empire, there was an Armenian Protestant millet, a community separate from the Armenian Apostolic millet. And the, in the Middle East, especially the Armenian evangelical churches were quite prominent and well-organized. And with emigration from the Middle East to North America, they're well-organized in the United States as well. The evangelical community almost divides into those who regard the apostolic church with respect and you know will work alongside it and those that perhaps newer ones who regard it as you know too traditional too you know hidebound too full of you know idolatry or whatever so it really divides but within the armenian apostolic church itself there was a renewal group called the brotherhoods and they came from the Middle East to Soviet Armenia after the Second World War, hundreds of thousands or more than 100,000 Armenians migrated from, the, especially from the Middle East into Soviet Armenia. It was a very odd sort of situation from 46 to 48 was the main wave of them. And they brought this brotherhood to Armenia and the leaders of it, they would have home meetings and things which might be familiar to evangelicals, but were not, not familiar to apostolic Christians. But they sort of became close to Vazga and the Catholicos. He kind of supported them a bit, you know, in a fairly quiet way, handed over Bibles in Armenian and so on to help them along the way. That seems to have fizzled out a bit more in the independence period. I think the church is probably sort of tried to consolidate, tried to bulldoze its way through society and you're either for us, with us, or you're not. And I think people like that who were sort of <laughs> not quite in the middle, but were their Christian faith was expressed in with a wider spectrum of practices than the church was comfortable with and found it very difficult. The other thing to note is that the current Catholicos is Kerikin is very controversial and many people regard him as unworthy. And there's quite a strong movement within the apostolic church to get him defrocked, to oust him and replace him with someone they regard as more worthy. And Vazgen, the long serving one in, in the Soviet period, he had pretty universal respect. He was regarded as a serious, solid person who had the interests of the nation at heart. The current Catholicos, unfortunately, people don't regard him as being in that category. He is said to have a secret wife and family, which obviously is not allowed for bishops and the Catholicos in the Armenian Apostolic Church. They're supposed to be celibate. He's not regarded as being well-educated in theology or in church issues and so on. There are wilder rumors about him going to casinos and all the rest of it. Obviously, in a small society like Armenia, you know, word gets about, rumors spread, you know, regardless of whether they're true or not, a lot of people believe them. And there is quite a movement to oust him, and there are various priests who've turned against him. And he has defrocked a lot of priests who, who seem to have argued with him or resisted things which he wanted to do. So, you know, to, the church has, has suffered a dip in, in public confidence, I would say, in the last few years. 
As we wrap this conversation, I'm just curious about your thoughts about what will happen with this conflict. Yeah, I mean, it's very sad that it's come up again. But, you know, everyone keeps saying, oh, it's not a religious war. And everyone, both sides try to stress this. But the one problem is the main marker of the two ethnic communities, the Armenians and the Azeris, apart from the languages they speak, Armenian is an Indo-European language on its own. Azeri is very close to Turkish. It's a Turkic language. The main marker of the two communities is religion. Like in the previous war from 1988 to 94, shout insults at each other based on their faith you know the armenians would paint white crosses on their tanks in the you know at that time just so that they and on their uniforms just so that they could identify each other in the as the battles were going on but that added just to this sentiment that this is a religious conflict when the Azeris attacked this church in Shusha, the main cathedral, Armenian cathedral in Shusha, which is a very prominent monument there, prominent church, very visible from quite a way around the town. This just reinforced these old stereotypes. And instead of thinking, well, you know, these are all people and, you know, this this was an area of mixed population, you know, and now it, the people have been driven apart. Can they coexist? Well, you know, will the Azeris who are kicked out of both Nagorno-Karabakh and from the surrounding areas, will they ever go back to their homes? Would it be safe to do so even if there is a ceasefire? This is just such a terrible situation. When you hear Armenians talking about the conflict, there's a lot of angst and there's a lot of, it's almost existential fear. They think the genocide is coming back. The Azeris and the Turks are ganging up on us again. They want to drive us out of the region. They want to destroy us, destroy our country, take it over, and that will be it. I mean, maybe these thoughts are overblown, but there's a deep ethnic memory of genocide. It's you can't overstate this. They, everyone knows families where you know they lost a lot of people in the genocide. It's like the the Jews with the Holocaust or the Roma, also killed by the Nazis. It's just such a an ethnic memory of that. Then the Azeris cite all the cases where the Armenians attacked them in history in 1905 in Baku or 1920 and all the rest of it. You know, both start to come up with all the ethnic grievances over the years, and it's very difficult to. Keep Keep the conversation really about well, what can we do now to make life bearable for the people now? You know, it's just such a sad place we're at for both communities and both countries and for the region. Felix, thank you so much for such a comprehensive look at what's happening in this part of the world. I think a lot of our listeners may not know that much about for people who have feedback for us. And judging from some of the other stuff that we have done on this subject, I would not be surprised to get some feedback from everyone. Send us an email. We are at podcast at christianitytoday.com. That is podcast with an S. We're also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, where everyone gets to share something that has recently brought them joy. Ted, over to you. Mine is very easy this week. Uh, you were part of it, Morgan. On Thursday, the CT editorial team surprised me with a surprise happy anniversary party. In a couple of weeks, we'll be celebrating my 25th year of working at Christianity Today. Hooray! Yeah, started as a as a kid, man. I was uh, still a senior in college. 
1995. So yeah, so it was a lovely Zoom surprise party with gifts, including a lovely book with a number of folks over the years that I've worked with over my 25-year history here, writing reflections, and just a lovely opportunity to think back on on just some of the great things that have happened. Ted, your memory is extraordinary, but was there anything that anyone mentioned that you had forgotten about? Probably, probably, but I've forgotten. <laughs> Problem with having too many of these long-term memories, the short-term memory sometimes gets squeezed out. You know, one of the lovely things I experienced lately was seeing two of my former coworkers both successfully defended their dissertations on the same day. That was not connected to my 25th anniversary in any way, but it was I saw it on Facebook, and they had both independently posted it. And they said, "Wait, you did too this week?" And it was it was great. So seeing people who've <laughs> been here for as long as I have, and some people who have gone on to other other things and, and gotten degrees or work, working for other great organizations, it's just wonderful. It's a, been a, a real privilege to work work with GT over this time, and I've worked with some amazing, amazing people and still do. That's definitely my uh, moment of joy this week, my precious moment. And yes, the team also did get me a board game as a gift. So that was that was lovely. On brand. We did it. On brand. Morgan, what was your joyful moment this week other than, you know, celebrating me? <laughs> it was a moment of joy. It was a pretty good Zoom party, all things considered. Can't always For a Zoom party, it was great. Yeah. Yes. And probably less awkward than a real life party. Just saying. <laughs> as someone who's gone to my fair share of CT parties. My precious moment this week, well, I told one of our listeners slash my friends who told me that he loves listening to the segment that I would consider making him my precious moment because I did get to see him. He flew into town on Friday and we hung out some on Friday and Saturday. So Ryan, you can be half of my precious moment. Congrats for you. <laughs> And then I guess my other precious moment then would be doing kind of what I do a lot of, which is these days, which is learn more about Illinois history, specifically Ulysses Grant, Illinois history, and going to Galena, Illinois, where I got to see his house, learn more about what happened in very far west Illinois. So that was cool. Abraham Lincoln spoke over there. Stephen Douglas spoke there. I think there's plenty of parts in the state where you can find them all over the place. It was also a good reminder for me to try to make a trip out to Springfield as well. So that is going to be one of my goals. Galena is a lovely, just a lovely area. You know, you get that there and you're like, hey, changes of elevation. I like this. This is this is nice all of a sudden for Northern Illinois. Everyone that I was with appreciated the fact that it's like a small town that's up on a hill. And I think all of us were like, oh, this feels like Europe. <laughs> and just some of the staircases and that you have to take to get to different things. We also went to Dubuque afterwards, which is just on the other side of the Mississippi River. And they have a funicular there. And for people who do not know what a funicular is, I'd only been on one, I think, outside of the U.S. But essentially, it's a cross between a cable car and an elevator. And it goes up a hill. That was really cool to go on a funicular in the U.S. That is my precious moment. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at MEP. A-Y-N-L. Felix, what is your precious moment? Well, I was just thinking that with the work with Forum 18, we cover freedom of religion or belief issues and people sometimes, you know, we're covering people being jailed for their faith or fined or restricted and banned and literature censored, all the rest of it. And people often say, oh, how come, you know, why are you always writing bad news? Why don't you ever write good news? And I always think, well, actually, the good news is that despite many of the restrictions and state 
impositions on religious communities in the former Soviet country, in many of the former Soviet countries, people still continue to practice their faith, to meet together, to worship when it's not COVID season, pray and to read the scriptures or read the religious books of their choice. And they're not afraid of the governments. They're not af- they don't feel they have to count out to the authorities and they're, they're determined just to carry on practicing their faith as they see fit. So that's really a moment of joy for people. It is. It is. It is a wonderful thing to talk to someone in that region and and to hear the talk about the importance of religious freedom, but to hear that it's their prayer, their connection to God, their connection to the people of God that is so much more dear to their heart than the freedom to be able to do it. It's the they want to do it because they want to do it more and they want more people to engage in it. It's not necessarily mm. just a, a point scoring thing. That is true. That is such a that is such a joyful thing to hear sometimes. You're like, oh, this is a a joyful and a pain moment for you. So yeah, it's 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 lovely. Felix, have you been able to go to church during this time? Yes, our church is open indeed uh, with social distancing and everyone wearing a face mask. So it's a bit odd. There's some um, sanitizers you go in and go out. That's how we have to live at the moment. Where are you based? In London, England. Okay. When did your church reopen? That's positive. Reopened, I think, in July, I think, if I recall. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find your work? Uh, Forum 18 News Service. We have a website, forum18.org. It's named after Article 18 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which speaks about religious freedom. And so forum18.org, O-R-G. Awesome. All right, well, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The transcript is done by Boone Miyashola and the music is done by Sweeps. If you have feedback for us or stuff that you want us to know about, send us an email. We are at podcast at christianitytoday.com or you can go on to Twitter at CT Podcasts. This podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. On Apple Podcasts is the best way to rate and review the show. We will see you all next week. Thanks. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.